folks, and welcome to another edition of Variable Depostulate Ensemble Projects. We've got a great show for you this week, as always. Well, after a week or so of this quarantine thing, uh, I'm going to make a rare sort of you know editorial comment here. For my part, I wish we'd all just hunkered down and try not to rush things and getting out there again. My humble opinion, we're all better off just to get this thing done and get it over with. If we get back out there too soon and then have to go back in the quarantine again, you know, it seems like we could be facing an even messier situation than we are right now. We need to keep cool heads. That's just my opinion. Uh, but whatever the governors decide, we go with it. I have many friends uh, who survive by the so-called gig economy and all the cancellations for professionals uh, who are totally self-employed is really a brutal thing. I've had all of my gigs for the foreseeable future just completely disappear. When I retired from teaching high school physics, long story, go to my webpage at www.nickdrawsleft.com to find out about that. And if you're really interested, read my bio and check out my blog. Anyway, um, uh, when I retired from teaching high school physics, I began the arduous task of rebuilding my freelance career when many professional proper players are actually getting out of the game. This offered some significant challenges for me, but I approached them the only way I know how to approach challenges. I try to love my way through those challenges. Okay, I'll circle back to that uh, sort of hippie remark. <laughs> On the surface, it would seem that almost three years of hard work of rebuilding my jobbing was totally erased over the last month. Okay, that's not on the surface. It was totally erased. Well, it doesn't take much of a stretch to realize that I personally have a safety net. Many of my friends, however, do not. Yes, there are governmental remedies that are being offered to mitigate the discomfort, but the frustration is still going to be there. There was a time when I, too, had no safety nets. As a young couple, my wife and I were dinks, double income, no children. That's what we recalled back then. And we encountered challenges. All of us do. There were times I really felt like less than a man because I was having a tough time holding up my half of the bargain. I had to let go of that. I taught brass ones at the College of Lake County in Grays Lake, Illinois, for a while. I had adult students. One of them was a gentleman older than I was with college-age kids. I remember coming into a lesson, and during the usual pre-lesson banter, I was whining and complaining about the challenges I was facing as a freelance trumpet player here in the Chicago area. He just smiled and listened. Then he hit me with this, quote, Whenever I find myself facing what seems like an insurmountable challenge, I try to love my way through it. Well, I've never forgotten that. I don't really have any palpable, concrete advice to offer to my dear friends who are sweating things out right now. They're all doing what they need to do to survive this thing. I can only add that advice that this gentleman gave me. Don't agonize your way through this. Love your way through it. Find a way to love what is challenging you as you're trying to push through uh, this difficulty. I know that might seem a, a, a little maudlin, but it's just a little something to add to the mix. In the long run, love finds a way. Okay, it's time for my weekly shout-out to the companies I endorse. First, as always, I play wedge mouthpieces designed and manufactured by Dave Harrison of British Columbia, Canada. I use them on all my horns from bass trumpet to piccolo trumpet. To find out more, just go to www.wedgemouthpiece.com. I also play Getzen trumpets uh, from bass trumpet up to piccolo trumpet. The horns are made in Elkhorn, Wisconsin. Their pro horns are very favorably priced for the quality. You get a lot of bang for the bucks. They also have the best valves in the business, guaranteed for life. To find out more, go to www.getzen.com or contact your local music store. Now, on to this week's show. Several weeks ago, I featured some of this music in one of my segments programs. Well, this time I was able to get my next guest to do a full interview. Today I'm chatting with trombone virtuoso, composer, producer, and professor Steve Wiest. Now, in the interest of full disclosure, Steve is my cousin. 
When I was a small child, my father died when I was around six years old. At that point, my single mom moved back in with her folks on Hermitage Avenue in Chicago. Well, my mom's kid brother was Steve's father, John, my Uncle John. John played trombone and a little bit of trumpet. One time he was over at the Hermitage house with his trumpet. I remember seeing this thing and thinking how incredibly cool it was. I knew I wanted to play one, but it wasn't time yet. It wasn't until six years later that things came into focus for me to pick the horn up. Uh, but I digress. I knew some of the stories Steve tells, but he filled in a lot of gaps that even I didn't know. He also gives some amazing advice about adaptation and survival in the music business and classes at the Lamont School of Music at the University of Denver, where Steve is a professor. I'll let Steve tell his own story, but first let's listen to his new project. Here's the new band, Vinyl Hamden. Uh, <laughs> you try saying that right. Here's the new band, Vinyl Hampden. That's uh, H-A-M-P-D-I-N. Steve explains that. And they're playing Steve Strutt on the old Rare Earth tune, I Just Want to Celebrate. I particularly like this one because it features a typically no prisoners taken solo from Steve. Buckle up for this. Celebrate another day of living. I just want to 
Folks, I'm on, I am now online uh, on Zoom uh, with Steve Weiss, trombone player, composer, professor extraordinaire, out of somewhere in the middle of the woods out west. <laughs> Steve, how are you doing, man? Doing great. The uh, undisclosed location in the mountains here is beautiful. I'm, I'm doing fine. <laughs> I got to get some disclosure out there. Uh, Steve is not just a friend and trombone player extraordinaire. He's also family, folks. So we are cousins. And uh, yep. my my Aunt Mary, uh, well, let me try that again. <laughs> my mom was Steve's Aunt Mary. I'm, <laughs> I'm losing it up here, man. Steve's father was my Uncle John. And so uh, we go back a long yep. ways. So I, some I, of my I, questions I about yeah. some of my questions Steve, about history are going to be things you and I already kind of know, but our guests might not. Steve, uh, when did you decide to make music? your life's work, something that was just going to be who you were for the rest of your life. When did that hit you? Well, it, it's interesting. You know, I've always, you know, growing up in our family, uh, you know, and that includes your family as well, uh, creativity has always been a thing, you know, in one form or another. Your your mom's incredible creative drive uh, and talent, you know, was an influence. My father uh, was an he could draw and play trombone and things of that sort. Um, but it, you know, so creativity was always something I wanted to do. I started out drawing. Uh, I remember um, our grandfather taught me uh, how to draw a spider web once. And I, I thought that was so cool. So I started, I started drawing things and uh, it was always something creative. Uh, we had a piano in our basement in our little tiny house in Woodridge, Illinois. And i plunk out melodies and and you know put the pedal down and sing over the the pedal so it would reverb and all that so <laughs> it was always something creative but right around the 10th grade I started uh I started trying to write stuff and completely uh self-educated a uh, little bit of theory in high school but uh and I I didn't even have a piano I had to use this piano that was at uh, our church and I didn't even know the uh, the notes the name of the notes on the on the keyboard so somebody told me uh, if you go to the brand name and then just slide off to the left of the first letter that's middle C so I wrote down this I wrote a C I got a magic marker and wrote the keys and wrote all the notes on the keys didn't get in trouble because they thought it was pretty cute for a 13 year old to be doing that but uh, so you know, I started writing, and by the time I got into high school, I was transcribing uh, some Chicago stuff and 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 writing horn parts for ZZ Top tunes and all of this in a in a little garage band that we had with a lot of my good friends. And the first time I heard somebody playing something I wrote, and then I got to play a solo on it, I was I was sold. It was like, all right, I'm gonna have to do this forever. And it didn't it, it didn't hurt that I made like first chair in the all state band and the girls looked at me differently. So I, thought, <laughs> hmm, I like this music. <laughs> but okay. that was it, man. That that sold me. Just writing, hearing cats play it, you know, and I was it was interesting. So I started out with, with rock. That was the thing, and I just put horn parts on it because I was playing trombone. So that was my instrument, but I was thinking more like a guitarist and uh, getting into that stuff. And then that led me to Jimmy Panko with Chicago. And then he led me through his playing to JJ. And then I discovered that jazz was a whole art form that was about playing solos. So I was all over that. But yeah, I think it was that garage band in the 10th grade. Now, you mentioned Panko and JJ. Um, did Bill Watchers come into your uh, life in some way? Oh, absolutely. You know, I probably the first trombonist that I heard after after my father, your uncle John was uh uh, he, uh my father gave me uh Herbie Green's 21 Trombones album. And, you know, that's like the album for most trombone players. Any any other instrumentalist hears it and it's like, "Yeah, this is music. This is, what is this garbage?" But, you know, a trombone player hears it and we just you know, are hypnotized by Irby's sound. And so that was kind of the first sound I had in my head. Um, uh, but then, uh, what was the question? 
<laughs> quarantine, <laughs> quarantine is doing you good, man. Uh, <laughs> the question is, uh, it where, is. Yeah, the, the brain is gone. When uh, when did Bill Watrous come into your thinking? Oh, Bill Watrous, sure. Okay, so you know, I'm uh, uh, I went to college in 1975, and uh, that I was so fortunate because I could only afford one school. It was the school in town and I couldn't afford that. So I was, I got in on a, a Pell grant from Jimmy Carter and, uh, and a $200 marching band scholarship. So that, that got me into school. I had to get a new trombone and my uh, teacher actually co-signed for it, man. We were, we were dirt po. But, uh, so I got into school there at university of Southern Mississippi and uh, Raul Jerome was the jazz studies director, and he was the whole faculty. It was one of those one-man shows. But uh, Raul was so cool. Um, you know, he was a former one o'clock member at North Texas and a brilliant, just brilliant man. He's still, still my Yoda. He's still, he's the great immortal, still doing great. But um, he brought in Bill Watrous that year, and that was... Th- the first year that I heard, I think that's when Manhattan Wildlife Refuge came out. And of course, you know, me and the rest of the trombonists in the world were freaked out by fourth floor walk up. And oh, yeah. Cadenza. <clears throat> and that was, man, that just messed me up. In fact, I had a friend who uh, he and I were kind of competitors and uh, we both heard Watrous at the same time. Uh, that night, I went into the practice room all night, and that night, he quit playing trombone. Oh, So it's like two different choices. You know, when you hear Watrous, you've got those two choices. Uh, so happily, he inspired me to practice. But, whew, yeah, he was. And then, you know, in later years, I got to know him pretty well, and he was very, very sweet, very nice and supportive to me, even, even though he would say, man, you play too hard, Weast. <laughs> he, he wanted me to play softer, and I, I, I couldn't do it. <laughs> Not you, man. No, never. <laughs> I had to be me. Oh, I can't do that soft stuff, man. I had to. I was always a mountain man, one way or the other. <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, so, I'm sorry. I just can't resist. The um, uh, you have a bit of a. While we're on the subject, and this is kind of a little more brass geeky stuff um you have something of a reputation of being a bit bit of a chop master um that's something is that something you just kind of picked up on naturally or or was there something that you know like after the watches thing you decided i'm going to figure this out and just i mean how did that happen uh all the you know when you play double d flat yeah people know you play it Well, you know, it started out is weird early on. I mean, I was always self-taught, you know, I I didn't have a teacher until real, I mean, besides Raul, but you know, I didn't have a trombone or brass teacher really until, um, until Maynard, until I was out there and then, and then college master's degree after that. So um, I pretty much kind of figured things out myself. I remember I started out, I was using way too much pressure and I didn't have much of a range. So I got kind of upset with that and spent a summer kind of just practicing eight hours a day uh, where my family vacationed in uh, in Missouri, uh, where my mother's family lived. And, you know, it was kind of a boring summer. I didn't know anybody. So I just practiced about eight hours a day and told myself, I'm going to figure out how to do this high note thing. And I, yeah, I came close. I improved that summer, but um, really getting to college and watching Watrous play and um, you know things started to improve but I didn't really have a a controllable upper register um, I think until I got to Maynard's band and and of course you know how that is standing next to him and (laughs) I mean you know when he takes a breath it feels like you're you're on the event horizon of a black hole and you're getting stretched (laughs) and pulled into another dimension when that about cat it. would let some air come in. <laughs> yes, yeah, we would, man. So you can't help but learn something about air standing next to that man. Uh, and then after college, uh, I actually studied with uh, with Jay Friedman up there in you know Chicago Symphony. Oh yeah, and that just just underlined everything and locked me right in. And uh, yeah, I think 
I think after Jay and Vern Kagreis at North Texas, those two guys are so amazing with, uh, with air efficiency that what I had come up with naturally kind of magnified with those guys. And, uh, you know, soon I, uh, got more control of the upper register and, um, that's kind of where I hear things. Cause I've always been around trumpet players like yourself and doc and Maynard and, you know, Bobby shoe and Roger Ingram, all the cats. So I'm just like, I have those notes in my mind all the time. <laughs> yeah, man. I hear things like um, <laughs> I kind of know that some of the answers to the next question, but you know, whenever I talk to uh, my guests, I always learn things, even if these are people I know. So, uh, you sort of uh, alluded to some of this, but how did how did you start working? How did your profession as a musician actually begin? Well, the the first couple of things were, you know, just little tiny gigs with that garage band and 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 other garage bands that I got with, and of course, you know, getting paid money was like what? And then I <laughs> expected we were going to be the Beatles or Chicago or something after the first gig. Uh, you know, young and foolish. I've always remained young and foolish. I think that's been an advantage. But um, uh, the first, I don't know, the first really time uh, uh, professionally was uh, thanks to Raul Jerome. So in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, you wouldn't think necessarily there'd be a big musical circuit there, but people, big time acts would come through Jackson and then head down to uh, Biloxi, Mississippi, where the gambling and stuff is the, the uh, casinos and so Raul became a contractor for the that whole area and uh, he used me right away so the first gig I mean I had no business doing this but the first gig I ever played really was uh, playing lead trombone for Bob Hope and uh, wow you know that book was that yeah, that had some stuff in it. I was literally counting ledger lines and trying to work out the rhythms before we played. And it was tough, man. But but Raul just threw me into ice cold water, man. I did that one. Uh, Nelson Riddle came through. I played in the section on that. And, uh, you know, lots of professional groups like that. So uh, it was quite an education. But that's where it all started. And, you know, I remember doing some some crazy things like we would get paid in cash. So I'd take a $50 bill to the IHOP after the gig and, uh, you know, order up a big breakfast and then say, here's, here's what the money that I've got. And they said, well, we can't break that, man. We don't know. I said, well, that's all I got. So, so I get a free meal out of it and, uh, tried that over and over again until I got the same waiter one night and then that the show was up at that point. But, uh, <laughs> that's how I started was with those incredible gigs, man. It was all, all to thanks to Raul Jerome. That's for sure. Now, this was down in Mississippi. Right. Yeah, those were all in, in Mississippi, usually usually up in Jackson, Mississippi, or down on the coast. You know, it would be the, the typical circuit of people that would be traveling around the country, you know, like um, Rich Little and Bob Hope, as I mentioned, and, you know, just a lot of different acts. Some of the old uh, uh, swing band people, you know, um, can't think of some of the names right now, but it, it was heavy. And then Pete Fountain and down in New Orleans. Oh, yeah. So uh, I started playing gigs with those people and really by osmosis and just being around them, um, I started to get my scene together a little bit. And, uh, and Raul, before I came up to work with you in Chicago, um, while I was still in college, the library at University of Southern Mississippi, thanks to Raul, was incredible. I was playing Thad and Mel and Gil Evans and Bob Brookmeyer and and all the bassy stuff, and I was ready to go by the time I came up to Chicago. Steve, again, I know some of those. And first of all, thank you for sharing what you just did because I did not know this stuff uh, about your experience in Mississippi yeah. uh, with Bob Hope and such. But uh, if you could, uh, let's expand a little bit on the Chicago thing, and uh, ultimately ended up on Maynard Ferguson's yeah. band. And uh, did you you played with Doc too, right? Yeah, that was um, after. After Maynard's band, when I, you know, I decided to go into academia to uh, to make money for one thing, you know, but the <laughs> the cool uh, underlying thing was that I learned a bit about teaching and, and the joy that can come from. Uh, well, you know, you and I are are uh, 
uh, graduates of the University of Maynard Ferguson. So it was, uh, <laughs> it's, it's fun in education to just, I just picture myself being Maynard and what he would do and try to bring some of that joy to the students. But, um, but in Chicago, it was, uh, it was all you. I mean, you got me some gigs and, uh, and then you joined Maynard's band. And so I figured now I got a shot. And of course, you know, that story, how that worked yeah, out. Well, and, uh, yeah, no, I was just going to say that everything I've literally that I have nowadays, um, I can trace back to that time with Maynard. It's, uh, and as you know, you become a member of that family and, and you stay a member of the family. So I was for years writing for his band and, uh, still sitting in with the band but it was it was during those years after I left Maynard um, and after I left North Texas as a student getting my master's that uh, I hooked up with with Doc and his band and that was whoo that was an experience because it was it was the guys from the Tonight Show minus a couple that didn't want to travel so they needed to sub out those positions so that's how I got a spot in the trombone section I was playing second uh and Doc had me solo, but man, it was like, you know, sitting right behind me is Snooky and, and Connie Gondoli. And it was just out of control. Wonderful situation. Now you mentioned that you uh, got your yeah. masters at North Texas and then you ostensibly became yeah. uh, a music professor. Uh, how did that all start? Man, I still can't believe that that happened. I, I think of myself as a professor and it's like, it's almost embarrassing. The young, the younger revolutionary in me says, come on, man, you're the man now. Don't do that. <laughs> but <laughs> I became the man. I became professor. And uh, so I figured, you know, this was a, a great way to continue playing. And, and really the underlying agenda was that I, I wanted to learn, you know, because I was so self-taught. When I went to North Texas, I was, man, somebody, somebody tell me what these scales are all about. And how does this work? And what do you mean resolve to the third? What is that all about? So I had to, I, I took all the freshman courses and took three years to get my master's so I could try to try to fill in some of the gaps. But, um, and then I figured, well, let me just go after uh, being a jazz educator and, and uh, educate myself as well as we go. So hmm. I kind of learned as I learned as I went and had a lot of great mentors. Oh my goodness. So many people that helped me along the way to kind of figure this stuff out. And so now as I approach graduation, getting to retire, I can't wait to start working on all this stuff myself, but <clears throat> that's how the whole jazz ed thing started. Could you uh, give me a little bit of a lineage of the universities at which you were a professor? Yeah, well, it started, um, you know, after my master's at North Texas, Neil Slater, who had been running the program for, well, he ended up running the program for 27 years and retired when he was 77. So he's he was something, man. And he's one of my great mentors and still is. But um, he got me a gig uh, at the university of Texas at Arlington. It was just down the road from North Texas in Arlington, Texas. And uh, one of the great jazz programs in the world, but it had the unfortunate location of being close to North Texas. So not as many people know about them, but uh, a cat was running that name, Bill Snodgrass. And people used to have t-shirts that said, I survived Bill Snodgrass. He was he was a force of nature and now he's, he's retired and he and I are still good friends and he's a, he's a huggy bear now, but he was a force of nature back then. So I was assistant director in that program. <clears throat> and then a, uh, uh, a position opened up at the university of Wisconsin whitewater next. And, uh, I went there and became the one man jazz program, kind of like Ralph Jerome down at Mississippi. Uh, but I also had to do, uh, classical stuff. I had to play in the faculty brass quintet and teach <clears throat> classical trombone. So that's when I hooked up with Jay Friedman and the whole uh, Chicago uh, Symphony Orchestra low brass section. So it was, uh, and I actually had them out at the school a couple of times to do uh, master classes and stuff, which was wonderful. It was Jay and Mick Mulcahy and uh, Charlie Vernon and uh, Gene Picorni on tuba back then. But uh, so that I was there at, at uh, Whitewater for about 
17 years. It was supposed to be, it was like Gilligan's Island, you know, a three <laughs> hour tour. It was, I was, I was going to be there for six years and it ended up 17. I couldn't get away, but uh, a lot of great things happened there. I had some, some incredible students and uh, th those are the years that I was with doc. And, uh, and it's a beautiful place, as you know, up there in Door yeah. County, Wisconsin is gorgeous. Yeah. So it's a great place to raise a family. Um, but then uh, Neil Slater came a calling and said, man, we want to get you down here at North Texas. So I, he came up with a position in composition and arranging, and I applied for it and got that gig. So we all moved down to Texas. And about a year into that, he said, you know, I'm going to retire. I think you should do the one o'clock. And I, I said, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to. I was like, whoa, are you kidding? So I was interim director for a year. And during that year, they actually searched the position and I applied for it and uh, got the position officially at the end of the year. And uh, yeah, and then just stayed there for another seven years, six uh, albums, two, two Grammy nominations we got. Um, so that was an incredible run. Uh, but then I decided it was interesting at one concert we did with the one o'clock that I was directing. I had Frank Green and, and uh, Stockton Helbing and Dennis de Blasio out and, and Wayne Bergeron. It was Frank and Wayne both uh, wow. to do a, a Maynard, a Maynard tribute. So it was, you know, a lot of yeah. testosterone and high notes <laughs> were going around. Yeah. And, and Frank, Frank did, uh, he brought the, uh, who's arranged with the original, arrangement that dizzy used of uh night in tunisia with his big band and oh, wow. uh and he insisted that i play the cadenzas at the end on the five chord you know all the diminished oh, yeah. stuff <laughs> so and he liked when he and i would go we do that together so i did that i never i never played a solo with the one o'clock because neil slater told me it's if you play a solo with the band, you're taking time away from an incredible young virtuoso. So yeah. I never did it, uh, but Frank insisted on it. So uh, after the show, one of the guys came up from the band and said, man, I didn't know you played trombone. <laughs> oh, you kidding. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Like I thought, well, maybe it's time to get back to that career. You know, I've been a band director long enough. So I decided to leave North Texas, abdicate the throne. That kind of shocked a lot of people. But I wanted to get back to, to, to my thing, you know, working on my thing. So that led me to where I am now at the University of Denver and their 
school of music's called the Lamont School of Music. And uh, so now I'm co-chair there with uh, Art Fountain, great friend and saxophonist. And uh, thanks to that school, uh, which also had this research stipend that I got was like 150000 Wow. So I said, oh my gosh, uh, could I, I said, could I research myself a rock band with that money? <laughs> and they said, yeah, sure. So thus was born Vinyl Hampton. I was able to finance it through that. And uh, I wouldn't have been able to have done that had I not come to University of Denver. So I'm pretty grateful for that. <laughs> wow. So yeah, we're going to circle back That's to Vinyl lineage. We're going to circle back to Vinyl Hamden in just a minute here. Uh, I want to talk about kind of uh, the 500-pound sure. gorilla in the room. Uh, we're still on the subject of college education yeah. and professorial work. Um, you have a master's degree from North Texas State and quite uh, uh, a pedigree of experience with uh, jazz musicians. Uh, you have a rep, street, some street cred, as it were. Uh, how do you square that? Right. Uh, with um, the fact that most colleges, when they look for music professors, if you don't have a doctor of musical arts, you need not bother to apply. Um, right. And yet you've managed to uh, completely circumvent that. How did that work? Well, I, I was very, very fortunate. Um, uh, early on that first gig as the assistant director, the, you know, Bill Snodgrass, could, he was like, he could care less about the rules, you know, he was just, let me just make this program as good as I can. And so he hired me as an assistant with just a master's, but the other schools that was looking a little more dicey, but, uh, university of Wisconsin whitewater at the time had a chancellor who was very, he was kind of old school. And at the same time, he was, uh, very, uh, ahead of the curve. I think he, he decided that my professional experience equaled a doctorate. So much, much to the chagrin of a lot of the doctoral doctorate holders at the school, I was admitted at the same level as a doctorate because of, it was essentially because of Maynard. And uh, yeah. so that got me in. And once I got in, you know, go through the whole, the whole, uh, you know, tenderfoot and first class and Eagle Scout thing and the whole <laughs> professor thing and eventually got full professor with tenure and indestructibility. So, uh, once you, once you get all those things, you know, you're in. So the other schools that I went after, they would, and I think nowadays it, being on a lot of search committees as I have, um, the thing nowadays is for jazz, um, masters required doctorate preferred, they say, but not uh -huh. required. So yeah, okay. a lot of people have kind of figured out that that nowadays there's so many great players out there that are also good teachers that they need to kind of make some room for that because not many of them have doctor. I mean, some of them do. It's It behooves young students who want to get into jazz education to get the doctorate. But, you know, back in the day, uh, you could have that pedigree, which is tougher to have nowadays. So some of the older guys that are out there trying to get gigs can get the gigs without the doctorate. So that's kind of cool. Okay. Uh, that's interesting. You mentioned that it's, it's just different. You know, it's harder to get that pedig pedigree. I hadn't thought about that. Okay. Well, thanks for bringing that up. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Now uh, you mentioned vinyl Hamden. So I want my guests to talk a little bit about uh, their personal pet projects. Um, tell us everything you can about yeah. vinyl Hamden. I'm going to go get some coffee while you do that. I'm All kidding. right. I'm, I'm glad kidding. That's uh, <laughs> <laughs> like Maynard. Ah, you got it. I'm going to go get a drink. And, uh, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, he'd leave the stage during the drum solo. But, uh, yeah, so I, at the point that I got that, uh, th that research stipend, um, you know, I, it occurred to me, well, I could, you know, do any kind of thing I want. So I, I first recorded uh, kind of a jazz fusion group that I called Front Range, which was a lot of fun. It was kind of a kind of my chance to do a trombone shorty, Troy Andrews kind of thing. And uh, that was cool. But, then, you know, I goofed around and I sang some like James Brown stuff in the background. And it occurred to me, you know what, I should just go on back to the thing that I love the most, which was that garage band idea. And, uh, and let me just write music and lyrics and tunes and pop songs and funk things that I've always 
enjoyed, you know, when it left to my own devices, I'm either going to listen to Aaron Copeland, Gil Evans or Chicago or Tower of Power, you know, so I'm always listening to that kind of music anyway. And so I decided to put together a band like that and put to, you know, got a lot of guys that I knew and had gone to school with. And uh, the guitarist, Ryan Davidson from Canada, award-winning guitarist and who was also in one of my one o'clock bands. Um, we were trying to come up with names and just one day he said, how about Vinyl Hampton? And I almost fell off my chair, man. It was so funny because, you know, jazz players know Lionel Hampton, but this is Vinyl Hampton. So I thought, that's perfect, but let me change Hampton to Hamden. So it's like Hampton. So the, the good folks at the Lionel Hampton uh, estate would not get upset. So it's, uh, that's the play on words that Vinyl Hampton is. <laughs> so that once, once we had that, it was just, all right, let's come up with some music. So I just wrote up a bunch of things using what I've learned teaching jazz, you know, the, the jazz vocabulary is so rich in composition and arranging that if you inject just a little bit of that into uh, pop music, it's, it's incredible. So th what it ended up being is kind of like what would Chicago and blood, sweat and tears and all those great horn bands sound like if they started out today with, with modern uh, sonorities and grooves and, and uh, you know, persona. Uh, so that's was the concept of the group. And then we found uh, the vocalist. We needed a kill-in vocalist. And we found it in, uh, in Lisa Dodd Watts, who is a, an award-winning uh, bass player and background singer for this country act in Canada called Gord Banford. And mm. she's won all these Canadian country music awards as, as like musician of the year and all that. And, unbelievable voice that's been described in some of our reviews as a, a hybrid of honey and crushed glass. So <laughs> she's got this bluesy voice. That's got, I know, right. It's exactly what it sounds like. It's somewhere. He's somewhere between Bonnie Raitt, Janis Joplin and Robert Plant. I don't even know how she does it. Some Aretha Franklin in there. But yeah. So she had a voice that was heavy enough that didn't need, you know, when you think of Chicago and stuff, they've got these great kind of Beatlesque, almost Beach Boy kind of harmonies. And, you know, we couldn't do that. We're just a bunch of horn players. So her voice has got enough depth that it doesn't necessarily need much harmony. So I used the horn section for the background vocals oh. and, uh, you know, kind of manipulated it like somewhere between Maynard and Chicago. I use a lot of jimmy panko voicings and stuff and that's that's how it came about and uh i can't wait when the uh apocalypse finally is over we're going to record the next album and see if we can get out on the road oh boy yeah, that'd be great well i opened up the the show as part of the setup with uh, uh, uh your arrangement of uh the old rare earth tune uh, i just want to celebrate uh i kind of picked that one because you yeah. have a nice you have a nice little solo in there where you uh uh, take no prisoners. Yeah, I really enjoy that. Uh, <laughs> there's oh, a thank you. There, there's another tune that I have in here that I want to revisit, and I'd like you to kind of tell us about it a little bit. Maybe introduce the tune. Uh, I, uh, has something to do with getting paid. Uh, can you tell us about that chart? <laughs> yes, it's the most ironic chart that's ever been written really i think you know no brag just fact it's all <laughs> it's all about <laughs> it's all about the fact that in the 21st century how things are different for the music industry i mean essentially uh there is no uh viable revenue stream in recorded music anymore in general you know there's the one percent that can still make money off that and there's applications in all kinds of different media and film and stuff, but the old old school thing that we're going to make a record and that's how we're going to make our money. And then we'll tour to support the record. Well, nowadays that stream is gone. So pay for it uh, laments that and talks about uh, that we shouldn't give it away for free. And of course, here's the irony. Uh, we give it away for free on, on uh, YouTube. So <laughs> anybody can listen to pay for it for free because if we don't do that, ain't nobody going to hear it. So it's a weird, uh, ironic situation for sure. 
uh, you know, nowadays the recorded music is, uh, is get you an audience that you can build so that they'll want to come hear you live. So, uh, once the apocalypse is over and we get the live thing back, um, you know, we're going to get right out there and hopefully somebody's going to pay for pay for it. So what's the name of that tune once again, Steve? It's called pay for it. And it's, it's a, it, we're, we're pleading, we're voices crying in the wilderness, pay for music, <laughs> pay for it. <laughs> Steve, you're, you're 
still a professor. I know you're contemplating uh, uh, pulling the plug and yeah. going back to Horn full-time, which is uh, what some people call retirement, but guys like you and I just don't do that. Um, but you're still a professor. Uh, no, no, graduation. <laughs> yeah, graduation. I like that. <laughs> um, yeah, I joke around that right. uh, when my when my daughter graduated from college, I graduated from high school. So there we go. Uh, so anyway, the, uh, <laughs> that's perfect. That's perfect. <laughs> you know, double graduation. Um, the um, uh, I know, if, right? It's folks. Yeah. yeah. The uh, uh, if you you have students who are looking to you as a bit of a spirit guide. Um, if you had, uh, what would you tell them would be the absolute necessary survival skills, uh, minimal survival skills uh, to make it as a musician now, 21st century? Well, it's interesting because you and I both are, you know, we straddle both, both centuries. We're that yeah. old, but uh, uh, you know, the 20, the 20th century had all kinds of infrastructure in place for young musicians because uh you know they can make money off of them with recorded music so as soon as uh in the 21st century as soon as all that eventually went to the wayside and started uh being free you know i i think i've made uh 0008.898 you know, or something uh from the entire uploaded uh, uh, catalog of stuff I've got out there, AKA I've not even seen a penny. So, yeah, you know, you, you can't, yeah, there's the recorded music thing doesn't work. So what I tell the students and I even have a, a class and we call it a 21st century artistry. And um, the approach to that class is it's kind of a, um, uh, a seminar kind of thing where we study successful musicians like it, maybe it's Jacob Collier or maybe, uh, well, Trombone Shorty is a great example. Anybody in the 21st century who has a successful career, we study them even to the point of interviewing them when possible. Wow. Uh, and I have them put together a, a business plan for their lives. And what we discover, we got a couple of nice texts, one by Brian Horner, uh, another by Adam Larson, uh, who's got some good material out there on the, the business scene nowadays. Uh and that is, I kind of wrap it all up under the heading of survive and thrive. So the survive part um, is what do you need to put together to make enough money to support the lifestyle that you'll choose? So if if somebody's like, man, I'm cool with living in a van because I'm single and don't need a house. I have no family. And well, that person can put together a snarky puppy type group and start playing at clubs for 20 bucks and get their equipment together and expand their horizons until they become snarky puppy, but they're living in a van and all together in a, in an apartment, you know, but if that's the lifestyle, then all right, what do you need to do to support that? But if you want to, you know, if your lifestyle is, I want a, a home, I want a house and a family, then you can't be doing the snarky puppy thing. You have to look at, at other revenue streams. And so, um, you know, we get into various aspects of what is that. So that can be aspects of, of, uh, of supporting the arts as some kind of a, a program director or something for an organization and on and on it goes with many, many different, it's kind of like nowadays I describe as the Dickensian, you know, it's the best of times and worst of times. Uh -huh. And the, the joke is you describe the best of times and it's the same answer for the worst of times. So, you know, like the, the best of times you might say, because every, everybody has access now to all the equipment we can record at home. There's nobody telling you what to do and what to record. And that's also the worst of times because uh -huh. you got nothing. It's like everybody can record. And there's so anyway, in that class, we sort out the survive part, which is how to make a living. And uh, the thrive part is always taking care of your artistic heart, your soul, so that you don't, uh, you know, if it, you well know any, any of us who have gone through the freelancing thing before, you know, we got to be with Maynard and all of that. It can kind of rot you out from the inside out if you're not, yeah. Yeah. if you don't have a, your own big band or your own project or something artistic. So that's the 
thrive part. So we talk about survive and thrive. But the, the quick answer, I think, to your question is that nowadays, because the infrastructure is gone, the young musicians, the young musicians have to have all the skills that made up that old infrastructure. So you have to be your own manager, your own publicist, your own marketing person. Um, and, you know, everybody from their laptop or even their phone can do all of that, but it's 24 seven, you know, it's a huge job, uh, but it can be done. We see great examples all the time of it. Yeah. Really interesting. It's fascinating to hear you talk about the fact that you actually have a college class devoted to this. And, um, I know there are colleges, music schools out there yeah. that are doing this, but I don't think nearly enough of them do. Uh, it's, yep. it, it seems like it's not enough just to become I a great artist. Agree. Yeah. It's, it seems like it's not enough just to become an artist and master of the instrument. You have to, you have to know how to get some food on the table. Uh, well, wonderful. Steve, great. You're doing that. Well, right. Yeah. And it, well, thanks, man. And it's in, in the class we come up, I, I see the light bulbs going on left and right as people realize that you still have to be a virtuoso. You still have to pick one thing and put in your 10,000 hours. And, you know, none of that has changed, but there's nobody out there to help you. So you have to, on top of that, do all these other things. So once they realize that, they become, uh, you know, ace entrepreneurs all of a sudden and most of them find their way. It might not be as a, you know, like you and I had the chance to do as soloists on the road, but, um, you know, it's something similar and they come up with all kinds of cool things. You've mentioned the apocalypse a few times now. Uh, I'm, I'm having like, a yes, this is, this is just the strangest experience. I mean, both, you know, for guys like you and me, for my family, yeah. I, I mean, I can't hang out with my kids. I don't get to play gigs with my son which is a real disappointment. But right. you know what? It's um it's fantastic pianist. Um the um uh the one yeah. thing that I've really noticed is popping up all over the place and I'm involved with a couple of projects right now too are virtual bands. Uh that seems like that's become yeah, kind of a thing. Are you right. doing anything with that? Yeah, a couple of things, you know, I I think of that like a a Michael Crichton quote from Jurassic Park. He said life finds a way. Yeah. I think with us, I think jazz finds a way, you know, you just can't keep it down. Even in the midst of a pandemic where everybody has to be social distancing and lockdown and quarantine, um, we're using the internet to create music. So you're seeing a lot of, uh, of jazz and pop and classical people that are just so creative that they're, they're not letting this stop us. So in my case, I mean, I really loved your, uh, the big band thing you put together with, iPhones. I can't even imagine how long that post-production was. <laughs> you have no oof. idea. <laughs> but, oh man, I. Oof. You're a stronger man than I am, my cousin. <laughs> but <laughs> so uh, yeah, we're doing a couple of those things. One with the uh, the university where I teach. You know, how in the world are we supposed to do online learning with ensembles? I mean, you can't. It's just not the experience that the students signed up for. Um, but we wanted to offer something at Lamont and a lot of the other schools are, I've seen, I've seen just about all the other programs doing this. And that is that the experience for this semester, or in our case, this quarter is um, let's make a long distance recording with the groups. So huh. that's been a very exciting thing to do um, uh, for the uh, big band that I run called the, the LJO Lamont Jazz Orchestra. We're doing a, a similar thing to what you did. Um, we're going to take four or five tunes, one of which is something I wrote for the group, and we commissioned uh, Remy uh, Lebu, which is uh, is this wonderful writer from New York, and he's written a cool thing. Uh, and two of the students. So we've got these charts, and we have a uh, audio production. Um, major as well so we've got a studio at the university and all of that so happily they are doing what you did you know so they're going to do all the post-production and they're coming up with a process so what we get to do with the online learning is just kind of we're having virtual sectionals you know just where the guys are talking about the parts and i've passed out the parts and uh 
then the audio production crew was going to come up with the recording sequence where everybody does a video and an audio thing and sync it up. And uh, that's what we're going to do with the school group. And um, then my good friend, uh, Dave Dickey, a trombonist who you've probably worked with, um, he's from St. Louis. Oh, he has got the worst situation. He's like one of the world's greatest Cubs fans, and he lives yeah. in St. Louis. <laughs> so that's tough. That's tough. But he, he and I put together this group that we call the Cubby Bones. That's uh, <laughs> myself and uh, and Dave, uh, the great Tom Garling, uh, Andy Baker, uh, another wonderful trombonist, and, and Tom Matta, who teaches out at Paul, oh, yeah. great bass trombonist. And, uh, yeah, so we're putting together uh, these these pieces before the pandemic that was uh, we're hoping to eventually play the national anthem at Wrigley. I mean, that's the goal. And uh, we've met some of the people in charge there. So we're working towards that. So we're going to do now uh, this week, I think we're working on a new arrangement I did of America, the beautiful. Mm. And uh, so it'll be the five of us doing the long distance thing. Tom Garling has already put out a thing with some of his friends, a trombone quintet that he put together with Tim Kaufman and then the other guys oh, yeah. I mentioned. Yeah. Um, yeah, it sounds gorgeous. So he's got that process down. So we're going to, we'll be doing that. So those are the, really the only long range. I mean, there's one of the small groups I work with at Lamont. We're doing a, a hip hop tune. So that's going to be fun about the pandemic. So I'm looking <laughs> forward to seeing what lyrics they come up. You know, it could get a little dicey very quickly, but I'll, yeah, I will have executive control. <laughs> there you go. So that's yeah, you know, the, the music finds a way in all yeah. circumstances. Yeah. Well, Steve, we're coming up on the uh, toward the end of the time that I uh, devote to this little pod. Um, now we've mentioned, you know, Final Hampton. You've talked a great deal about your experiences. Uh, I'm going to throw it to you. For you know the last you know tell us everything you can about uh, how people will find your work Vinyl Hamden uh, or the the college, the, 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 the Lamont School of Jazz uh, how do you find that stuff online so people can go hear it for themselves you know, tell us everything oh how wonderful I appreciate that well I've tried to put everything into one stop shopping on my artist website. Um, and then there's a Vinyl Hampton website, too. So those two places. So my website is steve.weast. Uh, no, wait, steve slash. What am I trying to say? Steve dash. There it is. Weast.com. So it's, I can't even remember. S-T-E-V-E dash. And then W-I-E-S-T. It's easy to misspell that one. Dot com. Uh, and all of my music is up there. Uh including pay for it and you can listen to it all for free. Uh, and then of course, hopefully pay for some of it, but it's all there. There's a vinyl Hampton page there. Uh, and you can also go to vinylhampton.com, which is vinyl and then H A M P D I N. So it's D I N at the end.com and, and hear it all there. So it's, it's all up. I had the good fortune with the, um, the resources that I had that not only did we do audio for vinyl Hampton, but we did uh, videos for all 11 tracks. Yeah. So all those videos are up there on both those sites. Now, those videos are really wicked cool too, by the way. Oh, thanks man. You know, you know who did those, uh, a guy who was a, a peripheral student of mine when I was teaching at North Texas, I think we did some things in composition together. Um, uh, uh, his name is Andy LaViolette, and he came up in, in cinematography at the same time. He's also a guitarist, but he came up in cinematography at the same time as Snarky Puppy at North Texas was becoming a band. So he hooked up with them and did all their videos, and <clears throat> he himself got Grammy Awards for his cinematography. So <clears throat> he's responsible for all that stuff and the... Uh, the B-roll, you know, all the crazy shenanigans we did with our iPhones, and he edited all that together artfully. Well, beautifully, too. Well, Steve, man, thanks yeah. so much for doing this. It's, I'm so grateful that we were able to, you know, this is going to sound kind of stupid, we were able to find the time to chat with one another. 
<laughs> like what else are we going to do? I know, like? right? It's crazy. <laughs> but the, I know, right? Right? Yeah, yeah. We need to do more of that. Your your mom would be slapping me right now for not spending <laughs> more time talking to you. <laughs> me too. <laughs> but anyway, Steve, thanks so yeah, much for doing know. this. Uh, I'm sure my uh, listeners are really going to get yes, a lot out of this. Well, thanks for listening to this week's episode of Variable Depostulate Ensemble Projects. If you like the show, please hit subscribe and then share it around with everybody. This is show number 25. That means there are 24 other programs in the archives. They're all fascinating and they come from musicians from all different walks of life and they bring a great deal of information that you can bring to bear on your own experience in trying to develop a career as a professional musician. So hit subscribe, check out the archives. Well, that's it for this week's show. We want to thank you all for being here. And I just want to sign off by saying, be kind, be safe, be well. Don't stop the music. Peace.